Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the dark forest, Dante encounters the lion. A lion is described as so terrifying that even the air around him is trembling with fear. That is when he meets his guide, Virgil, who gives him the strength to go through the rest of the afterworld. The surreal lion hoops pay homage to this moment. The shape echo the tail of a lion with its textured tuff at the end. Wear them as a reminder to give you courage through the winter months. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the greatest painters to ever live, the inimitable Cecily Brown. With her work steeped in art history, referencing the likes of Rubens to Goya to Bacon and de Kooning, Cecily Brown is known for her all-encompassing, small to colossal scale paintings that portray the medium in a continual state of flux, constantly blurring the lines between abstraction and figuration, truth and fiction, and liquid and solid. Always alive with erotic energy, witnessing a Cecily Brown work in the flesh is like seeing 400 years worth of painting unfold before your eyes. Every corner and inch of the canvas is activated, frenzied and fractured so intensely that you can't help but project ideas around desire, life and death with the painting's monumentous, fleshy and battle-like strokes and tones. Born in the UK in the late 1960s, Cecily Brown was granted a garage to paint in by the esteemed British painter and former Great Women Artists podcast guest Maggie Hambling before going on to study at London Slade School of Fine Art. And in 1994, after a stint in America two years before, she relocated to New York City, where she has lived ever since, continuing the legacy of the renowned New York School artists. The subject of solo exhibitions at major institutions around the world, including at the MFA Boston, Hershorn in Washington, Modern Art Oxford, and my favourite, the Louisiana Museum in Denmark, as well as countless shows at her galleries, including Thomas Dane and Paula Cooper, where I've been lucky enough to witness her work, Cecily is considered one of the most influential painters alive right now. But the reason why we are speaking with her today is because she has just unveiled an extraordinarily brilliant exhibition at Blenheim Palace here in England, where she has conceived an entirely new body of work that responds to the palace's history through hunting and battle scenes, as well as a brilliant commentary on the state of Britain right now and the romanticised but complex nature of British society. Cecily Brown, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, (laughs) thank you so much. What an amazing introduction. (laughs) It's good to see you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's such an honour to have you here. I should just add for our listeners, we are virtually visiting Cecily's New York studio, so apologies in advance for any background noises at the start of the programme. 
I've been lucky enough to witness your work on so many occasions in so many different contexts, from your smaller works in white cube-like spaces to your larger kind of 33-foot-long paintings in more expansive rooms. I was lucky enough to see your Paula Cooper show a few years ago. And now a whole range of works installed in a kind of gilded and carpeted wall rooms at Blenheim Palace. Every time I look at your work, I'm just in awe of the way that you handle paint, like I said in the introduction. The surface is just constantly moving. It's almost like it's breathing in a so I just want to start off by asking you, what is it about paint that you are attracted to? What about paint attracts me? God, the difficult thing about you is you sound so unbelievably enthusiastic. I feel like I'm going to sound very dull beside you. No, no, not at all. <laughs> very nice to have so much enthusiasm. I think that's why I thought you were American, because I knew you were enthusiastic just from your Instagram and so on. So what attracts me to paint? I mean, I think anyone who's ever used oil paint would understand, and probably anyone who's ever looked at oil paint, because it is very specifically oil paint that has interested me for so long. I tried acrylic and it just doesn't work for me. I do do watercolours and gouaches, but I always think of them as drawings. But oil paint, I mean, I know I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll repeat myself a lot, because one thing I always say is one only has so much to say about the work. I mean, I don't think I've really changed the way I talk about it in 30 years, because I feel like I just do the same thing, really. But oil paint never behaves the same way twice. I think Franz Klein, who said that, and my day-to-day life is testament to that, that it's really always surprising and continuously compelling, and that paint just continues to behave differently. And even as you get more of a mastery, the more challenging it becomes. So it's Sisyphean, but in the best possible way, because I never have to wonder what I'm going to do in the morning. And I I really do always look forward to coming to the studio. I mean, obviously, there are days where you really don't feel like painting, um, <laughs> but that's what drawings yeah. are for, or that's yeah. what the internet is for. But the longer you do it, the deeper you are into it, and the more compelling it becomes, because there's always something else to do. There's always a different direction you could take. The colours always behave differently next to other colours. So in a way, you're just never done. But that's also the exciting thing about it. And the fact that you're never done means you can hope to live a very long life and not worry that you're going to get bored. Absolutely. I mean, what do you think that paint can do that no other medium is capable of doing? I think this is always a very tricky thing to talk about because it's not that I feel that paint is superior to all the other mediums. It just happens to work for me. So when I was much younger, I tried to work in other mediums and it was just one disaster after another. So I eventually just... (laughs) accepted that I was an oil painter but it's a bit disingenuous to say well I don't think paint's any better than anything else because the reality is I do get more out of looking at oil paintings than probably any other art even though I look at everything even film because film would be up there with oil paint for me in terms of what I get the most pleasure out of myself but in the end looking at oil paint it just continues to mystify me and engage me I went to the Met last week for the first time in months and months and I, I think one thing the lockdown was good for was I feel so desperate to look at art in a way, whereas before I feel I was very jaded and one took it so much for granted. So just being able to look at Manet in person was just such a sensual pleasure. And also when I'm looking at other people's paintings, one part of my brain is always looking, researching and learning. So it's sort of like going to a library or the reading room at the British Library or something. (laughs) And I've always looked very closely at paint. But I think because I'm so drawn in by the medium then I find it endlessly interesting to look at the way it's employed I mean I do like it in the simple mimetic sense of the fact that I still am in awe that the same medium can say so many things so accurately like glass fur skin silk and it does for each thing so I guess the quality that always compels me is paint's ability to emote yeah to actually have the ability to carry some sort of electrical charge, and then to keep that in the perpetual present. So the fact that Manet's brushstroke is it's actually in the perpetual present at the, when I'm looking at it, that's what he just did, and it's still is there for us to see. But even though I don't really do this myself, I'm always still very put under the spell of other people's paint when it does mimic life so accurately. Yeah. 
I think just looking at a worker has this incredible ability to sort of transform it into something else. And I think almost I kind of have to double take when I look at your work, because at first it seems like these beautiful swathes of colour. And then actually it kind of reveals itself after a while. You see these images of battle scenes or elements of old masters, elements of sort of contemporary life. But I guess underneath there is these kind of images of violence, aggression. See, I would bulk at the word underneath because I wanted to be part one and the same thing. In a way, exactly at, like with the abstraction and figuration, that people sometimes think it's abstraction concealing figuration, which is very much the way, say, Richter does it. And actually, which I'm now thinking about more and playing with that more. But of course, the words conceal and reveal come up all the time. But also that in concealing, another thing is made. I always think the people who don't like my work Probably the things that the people who love it love are the same things that the people who hate it hate, like the fact that (laughs) it won't sit still. And when on days when I'm hating it myself, it's those things. Like I always am more sort of empathetic with the haters because I'm like, I know, you're so right. So, you know, on the days which are often where I hate what I'm doing, I get annoyed with it for all the same reasons that I assume people hate. It won't sit still. It won't resolve itself. You know, you just want to say, damn it, just say the bloody thing once and leave it. You know, it's like adding and adding and adding and changing and never settling. And so what can we expect from the work that you're currently making for your Paula Cooper show in New York? I try and say things just once and I'm finding various methods around that. One, actually, you'll see at the Paula Cooper show is I'm making digital prints of some of my paintings. So at a very early stage, because often I've been frustrated when I start a painting because I think it has so much going on at the beginning, which inevitably gets lost. And I want to go on with it, but I've always had this kind of longing for that early state. I was making a digital print and the quality of print these days is so amazing that I made a digital print of a big watercolour and you could barely tell the difference. So not to tell all the forgers out there, but still. But um, (laughs) I started thinking, why can't you do a digital print of an oil painting, print it onto canvas and then carry on with it? Because now I have all different ways of doing it. Sometimes I'm taking a finished painting, printing it and carrying on with it. Sometimes I'm taking a painting at the very beginning, printing it onto four different canvases and carrying on with all of them side by side. And sometimes things just move too quickly for me. And a painting does transform so dramatically, especially in the first few days. And then you can sometimes feel like you're spending the next six months chasing what you had already at the very beginning. I often have this sort of moral question of, is it enough? Yeah. It's kind of a ridiculous question. Like enough what? Enough brush strokes, enough paint, enough time. And it's partly my sort of puritanical side. Also because I know these things are going to go for large amounts of money. So even in that sort of way, Should a painting that I spent a day on be the same price as a painting I spent six months on? What am I getting paid for here? Yeah. So anyway, but this whole, is it enough? Because often I really prefer the look of paintings before they've been through the mill a thousand times. And especially the surface. It's interesting you mentioned the surface. I'm obsessed with the surface more than probably a lot of people know. And if I don't find every inch of the surface really alive, then I can trash that painting. But now with this new printing thing, you see, even if I trash one because the surface got so horribly worked, I can actually print it out and then work it again. I mean, I see why you could cynically hear this and think, oh, ka-ching. You know, so you're suddenly (laughs) going to make five the same and then just like do a slightly different stroke. But I really try not to think about that kind of stuff when I'm making it. And I've always been very strict about editing. So I tend to really think of the studio as an experiment and be very playful. I remember the other thing I was going to say, it was one person on Instagram always used to write that I was making pizza. And uh, (laughs) this is every time now that I think something's not working. I'm like, it's fucking pizza. And then just, I can't get this pizza image out of my mind and I can see why the haters would think. Oh my God. All I'm doing is making bloody pizza and that it's the same pizza over and over again. Like, okay, this time she put the olives on top and like tomorrow it's going to be the pepperoni. I suppose pizza's better than soup. Yeah, exactly. It's it's tonal, it's fleshy, it's gooey, it's bodily in a strange way. But what is it about sort of painting this fleshy surface that you're attracted to. I mean, I'm thinking of a work like The Tender Trap 2 from 1998. I mean, it almost looks like a kind of body unfolding or something. Like, for example, I will never forget making that painting because that was really torturous. But in the end, (laughs) it got very, very worked. And it does, I think I was using a lot of lead white paint at the time. 
So it's quite luminous. I think that's what saved it. So I think like even though it had so much paint on it, it sort of became very tumescent. I think it was really to do with the art I liked by other people. Because when I was young, I drew all the time, but I didn't actually start painting till I was about 16. Because like going to a crappy English high school we used powder <laughs> we're not known paint. for our art departments <laughs> no when I think of because I hated painting because at school you had powder paint and like yeah. sugar paper <laughs> everything was really nasty like and I, I always hated the texture of the paint and then I think I just started looking at painting a bit and I actually bought myself my first little set of oil paints and I loved it straight away but so when I first started really looking at paintings around that time I was always very drawn to depictions of flesh. And I didn't know the famous de Kooning quote yet. And yeah. I know Jenny Savile and I have both used it. But the <laughs> flesh was the reason oil paint was invented for yeah. people who don't know. But when I heard that, I was like, that's the most true thing I've ever heard. Because all the paintings I loved looking at were fleshy. Whether it was Titian, Rubens, Velasquez. I mean, I had the London National Gallery right there. Yeah. So Roque by Venus, Bacchus and Ariadne. And then Bacon, because Bacon was really the first painter who I looked at. Yeah. So his subject really is flesh. And that started very early on, because people always ask, you know, what was it about art history that made you want to use it? But it was never even a question for me. I feel like I went to look at paintings, and then it's a conversation that starts, that I feel like, in a way, the whole act isn't complete until I've made something and put it into the world. And that's why I don't think I ever felt intimidated by inserting myself into the grand tradition because it was more yeah. just a completion of the thought. So in a way, I feel like looking at it wasn't enough and I needed to respond. And I'm actually paraphrasing someone I once heard talking about criticism like this, how they got into it. They realized that looking at something or witnessing something alone wasn't enough and it wasn't until they'd written about it that they really felt the, the experience yeah. had come full circle my first, very first oil paintings looked like a sort of mixture between Bonnard and Bacon. Because even oh, though really? I loved the much older masters, I think the first things I really responded to were modernists. That's what's also weird about people saying old masters all the time, because it's really every moment in art that I am engaged with. Well, let's say Western art, to be clear. Yeah. Even though I've looked at a lot of Indian art, but I don't think you see it in an overt way. I mean, I love Indian miniatures a lot, but I don't think you really see the influence. But that's true of so much art. I mean, there are hundreds of people, you know, Jasper Johns is probably my favourite living artist and the way he talks about art, or say Bruce Nauman. Yeah, totally. But I mean, you really hark back to people like Titian and Rubens. I mean, what is it that really attracts you to, I guess, that sort of side of old master painting? Is it the dramatism as well as the incredible surface of the paint? It's very much the subject, I think, especially when you're young, when you first start looking at things. You know, if you had to sort of rate things, you walk into a museum, if you stand in the middle of a room and sort of just let your radar direct you about what shall I look at, I mean, I'd always go straight for the nude. <laughs> which I imagine most people would. Anything with bodies in motion would probably be top, followed by nudes, then probably going down to animals. And funnily enough, the thing I'd be least likely to look at would be a canaletto, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I can sort of safely say, I don't think you'll ever see canaletto appear. But they're beautiful. The funny thing about having been stuck with no art to look at is when I was at the Met the other day, I looked at everything, even Canaletto. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to look at you. But also getting older, a lot of things you come to eventually, like the shipwreck, because I would have put maritime scenes very low at the bottom of the genres that interest me. And yet here I am, I've been painting shipwrecks for nearly four years now, I think, because they're still not really going away. But funnily enough, I'm doing still lives now, which is absolutely not a genre I've spent much time seeking out but I came to them sort of via the hunt yeah but I mean still lives can be extraordinary as well yes but it's interesting because it's not all painting and historic painting references I've read that you also adopt from contemporary culture and society and respond to the world around us I mean what is it about contemporary life that you are drawn to is it the banality of the world that we live in because especially when I was at Blenheim I mean the gluttony of wealth and gildedness that surrounds our work was just so apparent as well I mean if you're interested in the world you can only spend so much of your time in a museum. <laughs> I'm in the world 99% of the time. <laughs> actually, I'm in my studio most of the time. But um, no, I mean, I can't actually imagine not responding to contemporary culture. One thing about painting figuratively is I always feel like you're, this is a Bacon quote, but you know, that you're turned back onto life more violently. And that when you're painting the figure, like if I'm trying to paint a mouth all day and then I go and get on the subway 
I'm looking at people's mouths and realizing it's like <laughs> looking at paintings, but you know, looking at things with a hungry eye more to yeah. take it in and store it and see it and be like, oh, that's how the teeth go when someone's smiling. So I always think in a way, figuration puts you back into the world in a more direct way. And that when I am more engaged in the figure, I'm more greedily sucking in what things look like when I'm in the world. I think I always avoided making direct references to contemporary things, but that's kind of out of my vanity, an idea of longitude and not wanting to date myself. So, you know, I'd love my paintings <laughs> to look new at any time. And if there's a world in a hundred years that it's not like, oh, well, that must have been 2020 because there's this going on. But just yeah. that I'm trying not to shy away from the grand themes. But it is interesting. Do you think there's something about old master painting that also speaks to the present day, even using the Raft of the Medusa, that sort of speaking to present times in terms of news? Yeah, I mean, I just think humans don't really change all that much. Human beings have been vile for a really long time. I think if I'd done faithful copies of the Raft of the Medusa, what I never want to do is seeming like you're dragging an old subject into modern times or doing Shakespeare in contemporary dress. Yeah. When I started reading about the Raft of the Medusa, and it was a sensation at the time. It was like gossip. There was another thing that that was the contemporary culture of the time. So the painting itself, there were people lining up around the Royal Academy to see it. I can't, wow. You know, they had to pay threepence or something. But, you know, it was scandalous because it was talking about the French government and how oh, wow. this incident had been mishandled. And of course, you know, the death and destruction is an everyday occurrence then and now. So it doesn't take much to imagine it, something similar happening today. It's, I mean, it's yeah. about a government who really fuck up and not treating people in the right way. But I want to sort of talk about your beginnings in art, because you were born in the UK, obviously. Now you live in America. You were born to a mother, Sheena McKay, who was a novelist, and you grew up just outside London in Surrey. I mean, can you tell us a bit about your childhood? Was art something that was something always present in your life? It was in the presence of a few catalogues that mum had, and just a few art books, but not in a big way as a very young child. But it was very much more a literary background. The house always full of books and mum would do a lot of reviewing and things as well. So especially when I was a teenager and by the time my older sisters had left home, my mum and I lived together in southeast London. We moved up from Surrey and I was on the dole and she was painting and she was reviewing a lot. So we'd get so many books in the house all the time. It just used to, it was fabulous, but not that many art books, but we went to Florence when I was about eight. But that's the first time I really remember looking at art. We went to the Uffizi when I was seven oh, wow. and that was amazing. The thing I loved most was uh, the Medusa by Caravaggio. <laughs> and I know I did a little drawing of the Caravaggio Medusa in my book, but I think seeing lots of things in Italy at that time were I just loved everything we saw. And then we'd go to the National Gallery probably once a year when we went to London. But And then as I got into my teens, I started getting more interested. But really, the art I saw as a kid was in books. But also my granny was an amateur painter. So we had her paintings around. And in fact, my mum had two sisters and they were both married to artists. Wow. So I think being an artist wasn't something too obscure in our family, even though neither of them made a living at it. But it was certainly something I felt that was a reasonable job. Yeah. Which I think is huge. Just always encouraged. I said I wanted to be an artist when I was about three. Yeah. And before you studied at the Slade, you painted in Maggie Hamblick's garret at your studio. Yeah. I mean, I'm so fascinated by this. I'm, I love Maggie's work and I've met her before. I've interviewed her for the podcast and she's just a fantastic person. I mean, how did that come about and what was that like? Oh, well, it was the best because it was the first time <laughs> I had a studio and I yeah. made all the work there that got me into the Slade eventually. So the system was different, but I'd more or less dropped out of most of my studies by the time I left secondary school. So by 16, I could actually go straight to art school and I went to Epsom, but I had to do a BTEC because I didn't have any A-levels. And then when I left just with the BTEC and no A-levels, I didn't really have enough qualifications to get into BA. Also, my art might not have been good <laughs> enough. First, I didn't get into Brighton, then I didn't get into Camberwell. So Failed to get into two schools, two years running. And then, so by the third year, I was getting a bit desperate. And a friend of my mum's knew Maggie. And Maggie ran this life drawing class at Morley College. Oh, and yeah. So, and it had a long waiting list. But this was the first of my sort of art world privileges, which I'm only really appreciating now quite how much. No, but, you know, that it is a lot easier of someone from my background, say, to break yeah. through. Because I did yeah. have friends who had friends and family in the art world already. 
So Maggie let me come into her class. I think she looked at my drawings and then said, yes, I could come. So I started going <laughs> once good. a week to draw. And I was the youngest in the class by about 30 years or 40. Oh, my gosh. Well, then, then there was one boy of my age and who she just called Boy, <laughs> <laughs> who I still think of as Boy. <laughs> Maggie called everyone by their last names. That's good. was very bossy to all these old ladies, <laughs> and smattering of men. But, you know, she and I hit it off of course I was terrified of her at first but we hit it off and she could see that I could draw and was serious and before too long she just asked or could she come and see my paintings so she came to where I was painting in my mum's little flat and she liked the paintings and then she could obviously see I was used to literally have a painting balanced on the little portable black and white telly and one (laughs) balanced on the chest of drawers and yeah you couldn't get into my room and I had all these hardboard four by four with these pretty terrible paintings on them but she said you need a space and I suppose she just made space for me in her garage and I moved in and that was my studio for I suppose just about a year because by the following year I got into the slate yeah I mean it was such an interesting time in the 90s I'm sure lots of people have asked you but I guess London painting it was people like Bacon and Freud at that time did you feel any connection to them considering everyone in your generation were doing something else I mean I feel like People were still really looking at Bacon and Freud and Kossoff and Auerbach. But at that age, I wasn't as aware of how different most contemporary art was from the paintings that I liked. And then I suppose when I did get to the Slade, I realised that I really didn't fit in with a lot of what was being made at the time. Was that what made you want to move to America? Yeah, I think that was a huge part of it. Yeah. Well, I came to America in my third year at the Slade in 92, and I immediately just loved it here so much, but also noticed that the art world seemed a lot more open. It was a lot bigger, but also just a bit more open to different kinds of art. And I was seeing more painting here that I liked. People like Christopher Wool and Albert Olin, people that I hadn't seen so much of in London. Were people in London just not accepting of it at the time? I mean, it's funny thinking back, because I'm thinking about what was in the galleries when I first started looking. And there were certainly basilets. There were all the Germans were still painting. But I feel like, I suppose, what was on the rise was Damien and so on. And my generation, most people were not really wanting to do painterly painting at all. Yeah. Certainly by the time I left the Slade. In the first year at the Slade, everyone's an earnest little painter because that's all they know. And then the more sophisticated you get, usually most people reject it. I mean, what attracted you to American painting and American culture? It was really New York rather than America. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, an important distinction. It wasn't that much about American painting, I don't think. It was very much about the city itself. I actually didn't paint a lot when I first came here. I just used to walk around all the time. And I was much more interested in film and video and photography. And I actually felt coming to New York made me think painting actually is over because I want to respond to the world around me and I want to make painting that's as vibrant as New York City. And for a long time, I didn't think that a painting could do that, partly just because it was so fixed. It just seemed like how can a painting encompass one's feelings about the visual world around me? At the time, New York still had lots of graffiti, but also very exciting. There were always flyers everywhere. It all looked like one big collage. And so much of it was new and foreign to me. I remember finding they had even wanted posters, like these kind of (laughs) hand-drawn, and everything was just exciting and different. A lot of it was like the graphic art you saw around and in clubs or just at Soho at the time was plastered in flyers and street art. It was felt like the art was just in the air. And certainly it wasn't like London where you had to schlep halfway across town on three buses to get to see one show and then go back all the way across the (laughs) other side of London. And and London's not bad if you're rich, but when you're really broke and you've got to try and spend a day seeing art and it's raining in February. I mean, this is the thing about England. I think it does give you a strong backbone. (laughs) Whereas here, I feel it's so much an easier life even when you're young and broke. That's also what attracted me. I had no money and yet could live very cheaply and just being immersed in looking at art. And there were so many galleries around in Soho. There was just an endless supply of art. And you felt like being an artist here wasn't such an odd thing to be as well. Yeah. I mean, London's changed so much. I mean, now if you tell a London cab driver you're an artist, they don't seem to blink. But back then it was a really <laughs> odd thing really? to be or to think you could be. Yeah. No, it's just so interesting. I was I was at UCL as well, but I did history of art and everyone and graduated about five years ago. But 
everyone in my year was doing painting. And it's just so interesting how there is just this total, especially in London right now, amongst sort of people in my generation, painting is completely the centre focus of all degree shows in an interesting way. So is painting considered cool now? Yeah, definitely. So weird. (laughs) (laughs) All the shows that I've worked on with artists, they all seem to be painters. And there is this like total upsurge in especially figurative oil painting in London right now, especially around like the Slade, City and Guilds, those kind of schools. And it's not looked down upon? No. If anything, it's fascinating. And it's not accused of being anti-intellectual? No. You know, I've heard that you've referred to painting as well as a macho tradition. I think in my eyes, the way that I grew up, you were the incredible large-scale female painter, not sort of gender everything. But how do you like to kind of explore, I guess, female sexuality in this sort of macho tradition that you've often called it? Again, everything kind of shifts as you get older. For example, I'm making more erotic paintings again now for the first time in probably 20 years. And I feel perhaps they'll be received a bit differently because I'm a middle-aged woman now. You know, <laughs> yeah. The perimenopause paintings. Because whereas before I might have been accused of doing it to get attention, and then here I was as this young woman who half the time was wearing a see-through <laughs> shirt, or I was very openly sexual or sensual in the way I presented myself. And my fashion sense hasn't really changed since I was 14, so I might still wear the same things, but I think it comes across very differently Yeah, as an older woman and a mom, and I've been through a lot more. So to come back around to the erotic content, I'm very curious to see how people respond this time around. Because it's funny how much people still talk about it, considering it hasn't really been front and centre in my work for a really long time. On good days, I think, oh, I was really clever to do all the sexy paintings young, because in a way... People always think it's going to be there. So it imbues all my paintings with a certain rambunctious sexuality. It's almost in the back of people's minds when they're looking at a quite abstract painting that they're almost imposing sexuality onto it. And what I've sometimes tried to do when things get more abstract, tried to have that sort of energy without having anything explicit at all. But it's interesting now that I've been around so long because presumably there are people coming to my work for the first time who don't know the much earlier work and maybe they just see trees and flowers and have no idea (laughs) that it's actually this seething mass of (laughs) lust. I think the whole female sexuality question is, and when I was younger, whether I was being disingenuous or not, but I was like, oh, it's bullshit that it's from a female point of view. I mean, I'm just a painter painting this stuff. Yeah. So I think that was all very much in the eye of the beholder. Like, I don't think intrinsically that there's something feminine. I like to think gender doesn't really matter that much when you're painting. No, I agree. Both when you're painting and when you're looking at art. Yeah. But even recent works from eight years ago, something like All the Nightmares Came Today, I mean, based on this 1968 photograph by David Montgomery that was used for the cover of Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland, I mean, it is kind of interrogating this image. Do you find that you are seeking to interrogate that? Well, those were very deliberately about women. And I was very conscious of my female gaze, both being in the position that I could be one of them. I'm used to being looked at. I'm, of course, as a woman used to being the recipient of the male gaze. With those, I was very, very conscious that I'm a woman painting women. Because also, at one point, I kind of stopped myself because I felt they had a misogynistic streak that I didn't like. But I had to just work through it because I'm like, well, what am I adding to the problems if I'm going to be painting 13 naked women? Because in a way, I never did straightforward female nudes. Oh, I suppose, except in the so-called black paintings or the night paintings, which are nearly always a supine female figure. And they were very much about sort of fusilian fantasy. So even that, it was never just a nude lying there to be looked at. Through painting the Ladyland image over and over, the way I inserted myself into it and twisted it, I think, dealt with my complex feelings about a very complex subject. Because I had to say, well, there are certain things about women today that I wish women wouldn't behave that way, like the sort of Kardashianizing of oneself and all the fakery and I don't have to be pro every woman just because I'm female and nothing's as simple as that so I liked the response to them from a lot of people were that it was actually quite intimidating when they were all hanging together you felt like you were very much stared down by these crowds of women in the original which is a misogynistic image that it has to be said Jimi Hendrix himself couldn't stand 
but I'd always found this image very compelling of just this crowd of women looking out at you. They look like they're waiting for something, right? They're very passive and they're there to be looked at and to be devoured by the eye. But it's very much about their faces and their stances and their psychological state. And I think that comes across. At least no one accused me of being misogynistic when I showed them, but I was definitely quite in turmoil about whether it was okay. And usually for me, if something comes up and I think, I'm wondering, is it okay? Then that's a good reason to do it. You certainly don't have to show everything you make. So within the studio, you can make something and you can later decide this is just too out there or I don't want to say this publicly, but I, w I needed to make it privately. And maybe it's just on the way to something else. But those were very much also just about how do you take a photograph and make a painting that's not just a bigger version of a photograph with a bit of swishy paint, but really kind of getting under the skin of the image. Totally. Do you find that you're trying to tell some kind of narrative within your work? No, not usually. Well, there are many narratives going on at once. Yeah. And I think with the abstract ones, I think of them sometimes as sort of an abstract narrative because you could certainly tell an abstracted story through them. There's always a sort of narrative going on within the colour, for example. I mean, actually, at Blenheim, they are narrative paintings, aren't they? So really, for the first time at Blenheim, I feel like over years, I let go of one by one of all the taboos that I had in art school about that like, you can't paint on canvas, or you can't paint with this, or you can't use bright colour. And I think one of the last is you can't do narrative. Because your yeah. narrative was like a really dirty word <laughs> when I was at college. Like that really? would be the oh my worst gosh. thing. Yeah, narrative painting. <laughs> That's really scary. So now, if I find something really scary, I try and embrace <laughs> it. But another really refreshing thing for me, if I could give any advice, it would be to not sell everything you make, even if you're doing well. And whatever position you're in, if you think no one's ever going to buy something, and then someone wants to, still try and keep one for yourself. I've always been quite good about keeping my own work, but I do wish I'd kept more. Of now you've got the screen ones. prints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. You can just print them out now. <laughs> The thing is, though, it's the surface because it's at the last minute they give themselves away. You could certainly yeah. have a fake, but up close <laughs> is, is the only thing you can't fake. But, you know, a lot of people don't bother to look at things properly. so <laughs> They just take a picture of it anyway. No, exactly. I'm joking. No, I think the whole point of looking at your work is to see it in the flesh. Which brings me to kind of your latest exhibition, which I was lucky enough to see last week at Burnham Palace. It's such a fascinating exhibition for so many reasons, but... I want to ask you, when you were given the task of creating work for this exhibition, what were you keen to comment on the most? I don't think I'd say comment on. You know, what happened was, it was just exactly like when I did The Triumph of the Vanities, which was a Lincoln Centre. And I would never have said yes, except that I could almost see it straight away in my head of what it would look like. And I was like, yeah, definitely. I can picture <laughs> it. And Blenheim came quite soon after that. So I think that had given me confidence that it had actually really been fun for once to work with something so specific in mind. Because normally I just work and work and then decide what to show later. So really, as soon as they asked would I like to do it? I started thinking of like hunts and, and I went to visit and it was the similar thing. I could sort of see it in my mind's eye straight away. Obviously yeah. not in detail and not what finished paintings would look like, but the flavor of it, yeah, like the sense of it. And I was like, yes, I could absolutely. And I think that's because I'm English. I grew up going to stately homes like yeah. every English school kid does <laughs> or used to. It was just so, so familiar. And then also it came at a moment where Brexit was happening. Yeah. And so from a distance, I was feeling very emotional about England and then asking all those questions about, well, am I English? I'd become yeah. a citizen here as if this isn't even worse. But <laughs> so the longer you're abroad, the more you wonder, like, what is home? Where am I actually? Yeah. I mean, revealingly for years and years and years, I didn't refer to England as home. And then this really? kind of nostalgia kicks. Yeah. And I'd have English friends say, are you going home anytime <laughs> soon? I'd be like, what do you mean? New York is home. I am home. But now I think since having a child, you turn into a sap. And then I started thinking of England as home more and feeling terribly homesick. And I think homesickness only really kicked in after I had a kid wow. because I started wanting for her the childhood and upbringing I had because I really, I don't think I answered you earlier when you asked about childhood. It was very idyllic, very beautiful growing up, walking to school in Brookham along the River Mall. And yeah. I mean, it was like a fairy tale. 
bit different to Manhattan. Yeah. (laughs) But landscape has been a recurring theme in my work from the very beginning. I walked around those gardens. They're phenomenal. Yeah. It was more, what do you want to respond to? So it was really just Blenheim as a whole, very much as a, what's that German word I always forget? As a complete artwork. Gesamtkunstwerk. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to do that. I wanted to respond to the whole thing. And also my ideas of England, longing and home. And in a way... I think that longing, whether it's in more erotic works or landscapes, I think longing is something that's always in my work. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting because it's been a few days since I've been to the exhibition and it's interesting because it's really stayed in my head, which I always think is a really good thing if things keep whirling around in your mind, you're not forgetting them. And I feel like I've almost kind of rediscovered more about the work myself as opposed to when I first witnessed it you really have to sort of double take and think about why something has been placed here but also double take at your work kind of what I was saying earlier and a lot of the work is kind of up high or something and it does look like these beautiful swathes of paint but then you look slightly closer and maybe it's just me as projector but you know they become these kind of violent aggressive paintings with this kind of Rubenesque quality of swirling bloody drama in a way yes. it's like dog of life it's like oh my gosh am I looking at a sort of epic piece of sort of butchered meat or something <laughs> mm. well no because I'm showing epic scenes of butchered meat <laughs> that's actually been the next subject after Blenheim because I was looking at Fran Snyder's a lot yeah working on those hunts and then the other thing that Snyder's was amazing at was these still lives of dead animals yeah so there's certainly that tortured hunk of meat element I immediately started thinking about hunting. I mean, I loathe and despise hunting. I love animals and I think it's absolutely barbaric. So I started looking at fox hunting imagery and even just hunt paintings by different people. And I realized one thing is that the dog never really gets hurt. And the the Brits, who famously love dogs more than people in a lot of cases. Yep. I mean, there are plenty of good reasons to love animals more than people. And (laughs) I also might be one of those. But uh, affection and respect and love given their dogs, when at the same time they can tear apart a fox. Yeah. There's only one step removed from a dog, really. Yeah. So just that hypocrisy. Once I started thinking about it, it's so rich. I could have done another five years of work. At one point, I wanted to repaint every painting that Blenheim had once owned and now no longer had. And thought I could do three different exhibitions there, honestly. Yeah. I am still making paintings that I'm calling a Blenheim. I'm like, well, that's a Blenheim painting. That's a- <laughs> yeah. Whenever you make a body of work, it influences the next. I mean, I don't even like thinking of things as bodies of work anymore. Yeah. It's best when one crosses over into the next. To the point at the moment where I've got these paintings that are half still life, half shipwreck, half hunt, half ladyland. <laughs> In a way, I think that's why I'm enjoying painting big so much, because you can actually wrestle all these different <laughs> subjects into the same physical space. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier about Brexit, but what do you want your paintings to say about the state of British culture? Well, to go back to Jasper Johns, I don't want them to say something. Yeah. I want them to be something. Sorry, yeah. So, no, 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 I want to, <laughs> that was my pretentious voice. But you know what I mean? And again, I think that's the veering away from being too topical is not wanting to say something about it or comment, but to be an equivalent in paint. So that back to the mystery of what paint can carry, I feel like it you're thinking about something at a specific time and it can come across in the paint so that it has a kind of charge of whether it's just about tumult or, I mean, let's face it, my paintings lend themselves well to talking about or engaging with tumultuousness and chaos and frenzy and things falling apart. Those are all ways that you could describe Britain at the moment are all... Ways you could describe my average painting. (laughs) They do come back together, but they're in this constant state of flux. I think conflict has always been one of my subjects or one of the things that paint handles so well is contradiction and conflict and saying more than one thing at once. I suppose it's that whole identity crisis that Britain is going through. And just like with America, how it's shocking to find out how so many people are so racist and yeah. horrible that the yeah. current administration has revealed in a way the underside. I think I'm sort of in shock about, I'd, I'd spent most of my life thinking the world was slowly getting better and better. And I think my generation was very much brought up to think that, that look at us, there's progress. That whole never again thing of after the Second World War. Yeah. So there's a huge disappointment 
in me at the moment. You can be upbeat about a disastrous time. I'm very much of the you have to laugh or else you cry approach where not to carry on regardless. But one thing I hope that the paintings at Blenheim do and the fact that it was delayed because of COVID, that in fact they might have added the world is even more of a mess than it was when I made them. So (laughs) in a way, I think it can be a comfort when you see your world and your own turmoil reflected. The turbulence of our time, hopefully, when you see it reflected back in a painting, can actually help. I'd never liked Matisse's thing of the armchair, of art should be like a comfortable armchair. I was always like, no, it shouldn't. Yeah, Art shouldn't be about (laughs) sitting down comfortably. But I really don't think that's what he meant. I'm thinking more and more that what it's for is... It is a sort of comfort. Mm. It can restore you into thinking humans aren't that bad. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting from a sort of art historical point of view. It was enjoyable to go to the show in the sense that sometimes your titles can allude to things such as they'll always be in England. And some would argue, you know, that yes, but in what capacity and that we are this tiny island. And some would argue that we are kind of ruining this country in the ground. But then again, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time that England failed and we damaged so much of the world economically, socially politically maybe we're getting what we deserve and for me it's stamping on the sort of St George flag and it's not our time we've done enough damage to the world yes I agree and kind of bringing to light this complex nature of British history and what's so interesting about being at Blenheim and also being with your beautiful paintings is the fact that you are just in this gilded beautiful place tucked away from anything I mean even the drive there is kind of through this idyllic village it's like you're just going into this gilded world because Benham Palace is such a microcosm of British society you really notice the fraught and complex history of Britain when you're inside the palace in a strange way and even the fact that you're talking about hunting it was so interesting because maybe the day after I went to Blenheim I don't know if you know this but Boris Johnson basically brought in this rule which was because we've got this rule of six at the moment six maximum and no one can play sport because you have to be six max except hunting and it was like are you (laughs) no but it's like but it's like are, are these people in these gilded cages exempt from everything. And so it just brought to light all the unfairness. And I love how at the beginning of the show, you see your studio floor essentially, and you see this kind of woman with the fur coat. And it's as though these people who are wearing fur still, hunting still, sipping champagne, whatever, are still kind of able to carry on, even though the rest of the world is in turmoil. Like we're still allowed to hunt, but there's a pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) And you can just imagine all the spittle flying during a hunt. I mean, it's like the people at Trump rallies without wearing masks. You say, well, good riddance if you all die. But then at the same time, it's the nurses and doctors who are going to have to look after them. So I'd be fine with it if none of them then would demand other people to put their life on the line. Just to say about Trump, for example, I'm sure a lot of the super rich nowadays probably have themselves all sorted out whether it's a little bijou hotel on the moon or New Zealand I'm not sure the rest of us they really don't care what happens to us I mean traditionally in England the aristocracy though of course they're not all bad and then other places the billionaires or oligarchs they're sorted their kids are going to be okay yeah I mean I see this on another scale of just parents at my children's private school in Manhattan you know, they're okay. They're not really the ones who have to worry. But, you know, when you hear about people partying in the Hamptons or just this sense that they're so privileged that they can't even get sick. But you know that if they do, they'll have the best care in the world and they can afford to go to their country estate. I mean, the right-hand panel on Triumph of Death, which has all those champagne-swilling ladies, I'm glad you got that. In their, they're wearing fur coats, but they're stroking their own little lap dog. They're letting their little dog kiss them, but they're wearing the carcass of another animal. It is meant sarcastically. They'll always be in England, yeah. Although I hope they will in one way or another. But it doesn't mean that that's necessarily a good thing. I wondered about that because I did a hashtag the other day. They'll always be in England. And then all the others were pictures of Vera Lynn and the English flag. And I'm like, oh, I guess this could be misconstrued. But I feel like in the context, I don't mind if it's somewhat ambiguous. Because one does have contradictory feelings. I mean, I love England. Yeah. I have very, very strong feelings towards it. But it doesn't mean I love what it's doing or where it is now. But one was brought up to be so self-regarding and to think of oneself so much as the centre of the universe. It's a kind of amazing. You just wish that. The scales could be lifted from everyone's eyes at the moment in the way that they are with some. 
But obviously, when I was walking around the palace, the way that they report on battles and war and Winston Churchill and how very uncritical it all is, it's fascinating. Yeah. No, it is. And what I find fascinating is how you leave the exhibition with the triumph of death, which is incredibly based on this 15th century fresco in Palermo that was made in response to the Black Death. But actually, oh. you created this last year, sort of yeah. prior to coronavirus. I mean, thank God. Artists predicting the future, literally. Well, I wouldn't have painted it yeah. this year. I mean, I wouldn't be that crass. <laughs> so I'm really pleased. I've still not seen the painting altogether because it had to be painted in yeah. two parts. But I'm loving seeing the images of it and seeing that it worked out. I'm so glad the date on it is 2019 because I just wouldn't have painted it this year. Yeah. How do you want people to leave this exhibition? Wanting to start again at the beginning. <laughs> One thing I haven't liked about going to see art is now people are being strict about which way you can go around an exhibition. To be honest, I'm loving seeing art because there's so few people there. But time tickets are tricky. I've always loved being able to start again once you've seen something once. It's not going to be the same twice, hopefully. And that even, say, with the vitrine at the beginning, it'll help. Just to be clear, there's a vitrine full of source material. So it's a lot of things from my studio floor that I copied or looked at or worked in on the studio floor while I was making these paintings. And I think, in a way, they help you find a way into some of the paintings that you might not realise otherwise what's being depicted but yeah, I like the idea that you can look at the vitrine again at the end and be like oh that's what that was yeah. now I see how this yeah. relates so what do I want people to have when they leave I also love the idea of people then going out into the gardens and I think one advantage as well of seeing art at the moment is that maybe there's more space where you can actually think about the work when you've seen it rather than just rush off to see the next thing I and mean, I yeah. guess that's always true somewhere like Blenheim because you don't come out onto a crowded street you have that time to see what leaves an after image, as it were. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We do always ask all of our guests at the end of the podcast, if there was a female artist, dead or alive, who you'd most like to meet, who would it be? And what would you say to them? Oh, my God. <laughs> dead or alive? I wouldn't have minded hanging out with Joan Mitchell. I mean, I love her work. I just want to talk to her about painting, really. Yeah. And I just like to chew the fat about paint. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Cecily. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me and thanks for all you do. <laughs> and I'll see you soon, I hope. Thank you all so much for listening to the 45th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Cecily Brown. This was such an insight into her work and career so far. And for those in the UK right now, I urge you all to visit her major exhibition at Blenheim Palace, which is open until the 3rd of January 2021. As always, I have linked to further reading and images in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. <laughs>